the miniseries Deadly Deception has been the most popular release for Behind the Crimes. It's about the Yorkshire Ripper and how the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe was blown off course by a hoaxer. It was so well regarded that Substack, which is my publishing platform, promoted it globally. So, to coincide with the conclusion of the British television drama The Long Shadow, I'm reissuing it as a box set. The drama and my podcast are about exactly the same subject, and I'm delighted to say that the screenwriter of The Long Shadow, George Kay, has agreed to record an introduction to describe the importance of the detective Chris Gregg in solving one of the UK's most notorious hoaxes. If you've heard all three episodes before, you're welcome to give them another listen, or you might just want to hear George's analysis, which is fascinating. He has spent four years researching Sutcliffe, his crimes and legacy. Also, please do rate and review this podcast. And if you haven't yet, why not follow us? Just subscribe for free at robertsmurphy.substack.com. You get loads of extras. So here's George Kay. And after that, all three episodes of Deadly Deception in their entirety, back to back. Yeah, Chris is a fantastic um, guy, but also because uh, I think he's he's great to chat to, isn't he? But he's also a wonderful police detective. And he was he worked on the original inquiry into the crimes of Peter Sutcliffe as a quite junior detective, I think. I think he was part, uh, he was first uh, posted into the Huddersfield uh, incident room around the time of the murder of Helen Ripka. And it was part of that whole scene where people had to take action cards and load them into wheels and, you know, and, and everything was going to, the whole inquiry was getting overwhelmed with paperwork and stuff. And he played a small role, as so many people did, in trying to, um, uh, to keep that inquiry moving along. Uh, but because he was a young man at the time, and um, it stuck with him, I think, as one of the earliest things he worked on. And it's obviously such a well-known and 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 huge scale case that as he rose through the ranks as you can kind of tell he would have done you know very articulate very bright um guy that when he finally became detective chief superintendent um i guess 20 years later maybe even more um he was still wondering who it was post the arrest of peter sutcliffe who didn't have a geordie accent who would have sent those tapes and letters and since the, in the gap, in, in the intervening years, obviously DNA had come up as an as a investigative tool. And so quite regularly, I think he started to, to, to have DNA trawls done on the saliva on the letter. Uh, there were three letters. So I think he had a, he had a sort of, uh, his, his sample size was getting ever slimmer as he cut off bits of saliva to have tested on the DNA database. Um, but he had the kind of drive to keep revisiting it and see it through as only kind of um, detectives with a personal experience or reason to revisit these things have. And in the end, it matched the sort of um, the arrest for John Humble, who I think was arrested for drink driving in the end. And that's what led to Humble's arrest and confession for being the guy we know as Wearside Jack. But it's all down to Chris's effort, really. And I think some great forensics work. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no nearer catching me now. 
than four years ago when I started. And the use in the long shadow of the tape as well, because you do use it, don't you? Uh, just tell, tell us what thoughts you had about using that, because it's odd, isn't it, for someone who is such a monster, Peter Sutcliffe, people associate somebody else's voice with him. And you, you're placing uh, the viewer in the minds of the whole country and, and just uh, w- with that sound. And it's every crackle is now so famous in that tape as well, isn't it? Yeah, and I think for the, for the victims' families, especially the victims' children, and, and most specifically Richard McCann talks about this, that for a long time he would associate that voice, John Humble's voice, as being the voice of the man that killed his mum. And even after Sutcliffe was found and arrested, he couldn't quite divorce that feeling from his head because he was thinking, well, for, for so long I've thought of that voice as the man who killed. That's the voice that haunted him growing up. So that's the long shadow effect of that sat with him, not until Sutcliffe was uh, sent to prison. But it only started to sort of dissipate once Humble was arrested and you could see clearly that he was not the man who killed Wilma McCann for Richard and I'm sure for others. And it's sort of that voice, and we use the real voice actually in, in the drama. It's one of the few examples of a character, for want of a better word, being drawn out of archive because it sits in our culture as a haunting thing and it sort of existed everywhere and nowhere for those people and um um terrifying really and and terrifying too when john humble reads the tape out once he is arrested 25 years later um and also tragic that he called back saying it's all a hoax please ignore it and he lost his bottle in terms of making the point again but the police failed to pick up on the fact that that was a hoax and so many tragedies associated with all these things. The fear was that there was a killer at large here who could strike anywhere. But already, the nerd already struck in in Leeds and Bradford, and was now, you know, striking in one of the nearby towns. We're with a young officer in the 1970s, looking for a killer with the dreadful nickname, the Yorkshire Ripper. Police don't know it, but they have the murderer in their sights. Those three lines of inquiry did the trick in terms of identifying the killer. How does a series of letters from a hoaxer derail Britain's biggest manhunt? And this was the one that's said, um, you say eight, but don't forget Preston 75. What does Preston 75 mean? And what dark coincidences make the lead detective believe the crank notes? We've got him. We must have. Something's broken. We've got him. He's going to tell us we've got him. And we were absolutely buzzing. You know, we thought this is a We'd never been called back before. And as the hoaxer's campaign intensifies, a police force is blindsided by a new development. 
and the whole place was just silent. It was deathly silent. And he went click and played it. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. Behind the Crimes is the podcast that tells you about the biggest or most interesting cases from the people who were involved. Victims, detectives, experts, and sometimes even the criminals themselves. For 20 years, I've covered some of Britain's highest-profile crime stories for television news. In this series, I'll be making a deep dive into each case to see how crimes were solved or how criminals managed to evade justice. If you want to see evidence from each inquiry, watch video clips, read more or get in touch, just subscribe to the Behind the Crime site and please do rate and review our podcast. A word of warning, this is a crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions you might find affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This three-part miniseries describes the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, who went by the nickname deemed appropriate in the 1970s, the Yorkshire Ripper. This phrase is extremely distressing to the families of the victims, and I have avoided using it wherever possible, but sometimes, unfortunately, it is the only term I can use. This miniseries is called Deadly Deception, Episode 1, The Letters. The first murder was in the early hours of October the 30th, 1975. Wilma McCann was 28 years old, a mother of four who'd been on a night out. She lived in the Chapeltown area of Leeds. At that time, Chris Gregg was a young probationary uniformed constable. He wasn't involved in that case, but he watched from afar as the serial killer's list of victims started to grow. As a, as a PC at Huddersfield, just getting on with my probationary responsibilities, I, I wasn't really aware of what was happening um, on the major crime front, you know, over in Leeds. You know, although we were in the same force and we'd recently amalgamated, it was only amalgamated in 1974, was Leeds and into Bradford and West Yorkshire Police. Um, but, um, I, you know, whilst you, you had passing knowledge there'd been a murder in Bradford or one in Huddersfield, it, it wasn't my world, really. You know, I was getting on with my job of, as a trainee rookie probationer and, um, and doing what needed to be done there, dealing with very low-level things like, you know, speeding and parking and all this stuff. Could you just give us a sense of what the feeling was like within the police force, what the feeling was like within West Yorkshire, what the feeling was like within the country, that in, in two years there were eight murders? The, things escalated, you know, rapidly um, from the first murder of Wilma McCann. I, I, think, I, I don't think anybody... Uh, certainly myself and, and my colleagues had any sense that um, this was embarking on a serial killer you know, spree, a serial killing spree, far from it. Uh, murders happened, um, generally quickly solved, um, unusual really for a whodunit murder to, to run on. You know, that yes, they did happen, but they were, they, they were few and far between. They wrapped up pretty quickly. There was a sense of, this, you know, this is really serious. That the, there were now, you know, three, four, five, six murders being linked um, that were 
being put down to the person who was, you know, titled the Yorkshire Ripper. And, and um, the early, the early stages, it did seem to be preying on, you know, on the, on the sex worker industry at the time. And, uh, and it was thought that this, the killer was targeting that section, you know, that, that vulnerable section who were, you know, leaving themselves um, in a position where they, they were very vulnerable to someone who got his propensity to, to take advantage of it. The roll call of victims makes grim listening. Wilma McCann was murdered in October 75. Just three months later, in January 76, a 42-year-old, Emily Jackson, was killed. A year later, in February 77, he murdered Irene Richardson. All three were from around the Chapeltown area of Leeds. He murdered in Bradford for the first time two months later. His victim was a 32-year-old, Tina Atkinson, in the Manningham district. All four victims so far had been sex workers. Perhaps it says something of the attitudes of the time, but the inquiry seemed to pivot in the minds of police and the public when his next victim was not. 16-year-old Jay MacDonald was murdered in Leeds in June 1977. And the killer struck four months later, murdering sex worker Jean Jordan in Manchester for the first time. We'll come back to Jean later because clues left where she was found are key. In January 78 in Bradford, he killed Yvonne Pearson, a 21-year-old sex worker. Her body remained undiscovered when, 10 days later, he killed 18-year-old Helen Ritka. This was when Chris Gregg became involved. He'd now passed his probation and his detective's training and was waiting for a detective's position to become available. I was um, back at Huddersfield when a, a murder happened in you know, the division I was working in in Huddersfield. And it was Helen Ritka, a young 18-year-old girl. And uh, she'd been... Um, picked up by you know, a punter seemingly in the Hill House area of Huddersfield behind a timber yard called Garrard's. And it's in a pretty run-down part of town, industrial area, um, industrial side of the town. And um, it was known as, a, as, as an area where you know, sex workers would operate and the, there were some toilets nearby and it all had a bit of a you know, feel to it of that kind of world. And um, the, the murder had happened there. Everybody knew this was likely to be another Yorkshire Ripper case. And it was, it was terrifying for the public in Yorkshire because over that two to three years now since Wilma McCann had been killed and there were now six other murders. There was actually seven others. One hadn't come out at, at this point. Yvonne Pearson's body hadn't been found, who had been killed just before Helen Ripka. Uh, but it's almost um, hard to describe the sense of fear that was in this part of the world in West Yorkshire. And because everybody was looking at each other, it was all over the news. And the fear was that there was a killer at large here who could strike anywhere. But already, we knew it already struck in, in Leeds and Bradford, and was now, you know, striking in one of the nearby towns. And, um, and the alarm, uh, the sense of um, who is this person, people looking at their own families and their own friends, could it be anything to do with this? Because nobody knew where this person was from, were, were they very likely from this part of the world in West Yorkshire? That's where everybody assumed this person was 
in the middle of somewhere. The pressure was on. Seven murders that they knew about and an eighth they would soon discover. The inquiry was led by George Oldfield. He was West Yorkshire's assistant chief constable. He was a veteran of the Second World War, a very experienced and demanding leader. He was feared by many of the force's junior officers. It was his job to coordinate all the separate investigations and formulate lines of inquiries to catch the man who was the country's most wanted criminal. George Oldfield and West Yorkshire Police had the biggest burden in British policing. The force was in complete... Um, it was not in meltdown, but it was, it was in a high state of stress in every respect because there were now the, these various murders running. Each of them had a different senior officer leading them. Each of them had a different team involved who were, some were moving from one to the next murder. Um, and I remember at Huddersfield, there was a huge team, maybe a hundred detectives, who there wasn't, there wasn't a dedicated murder team like now. Um, detectives had to be drawn from the various other divisions in the force. And West Yorkshire, yes, it's a, it's a massive force, you know, and, and at the time probably had 10,000 officers. Um, but they had the day-to-day -day work going on in cities like Leeds and Bradford. And to draw out, um, you know, hundreds, probably 250 officers working on these from the detective ranks left a lot of stress back at the divisions. They had to send instant room staff. They had to send detective sergeants, detective inspectors. So it's stripping out the whole layers and layers of, of CID ranks to deal with this, what was now the serial killer case. And... It's, it's hard to describe the atmosphere. Fear was underlying everything. It was, there was nothing else that was more important than this case to the police and the public at that time. And for you personally, as someone who was right at this fledgling stage of your career to suddenly be part of something which had been going on and been big that you hadn't been part of, but to now be included in this inquiry. I was 22. It was almost surreal because it was this... The size of the investigation is what, what struck me. The one thing, and I found it right through my career with, with major, major investigations, is once detectives are together, there is an absolute joint determination in the immediate aftermath of a whodunit murder like this. We're going to get this guy. We're going to get this guy. Because they're aware of the horror and the carnage that's happened to the person only hours before and this, the terror that somebody's gone through. And, um, and the determination is, there is a sense of that, that absolute belief, we're going to get this person. And all, all the time I was on that case, and uh, another murder happened, that never wavered. It was complete belief, this is the case, we're going to get this person. All days off cancel, 15-hour shifts, you know, as the norm, until further notice, your life goes on hold. As an individual, your whole life is, is, is wrapped up in that case, literally. It was only two months later that the first letter appeared, didn't it? Uh, and that was, if I'm not mistaken, that was sent to police. The first letter was sent to police and the second letter was sent to the Daily Mirror. Um, can you just tell us when you became aware of these and what, what you thought and what the thinking was in the force at the time? 
I was uh, working in the incident room at Huddersfield when the first letter came in. And um, I remember um, it came into the office, into the incident room, in a, in a sealed um, exhibit bag, which was unusual because at the time everything was letters, documents, um, phone messages and all the rest of it. So the paper was <laughs> uh, the norm. But this was unusual because people did write in all, all the time, you know, members of the public, uh, information coming from various forces on telexes, internal systems, or, so mountains of paper. But this one was in a plastic bag already. So it had gone through the system internally amongst the, the commanders. Um, and it was, it was now within the incident room. And uh, I remember there seemed to be um, a sense that this was being taken as, as an important letter uh, for the reason it was in, plastic, in the plastic bag. The envelope had a few clues. There was a large rectangular postmark saying Sunderland in the top right corner. So far, Sunderland in the northeast of England had featured nowhere in the inquiry. This was new. It was also addressed to George Oldfield personally. The actual letter, it was in the bag on two sides of lined paper, unfolded so all the detectives could read through the plastic. The handwriting was angular, with few loops on letters like G's and Y's. There was a slight rightward slant to the writing. You can see the letters in full on the Behind the Crimes website. But this is what it said, and it is grim listening. Dear Sir, I'm sorry I cannot give my name for obvious reasons. I am the Ripper. I've been dubbed a maniac by the press, but not by you. You call me clever, and I am. You and your mates haven't got a clue that photo in the paper gave me fits, and that bit about killing myself? No chance. I've got things to do. My purpose, to rid the streets of them sluts. My one regret is that young Lassie MacDonald. Didn't know, cause changed the routine that night. Up to number eight now. You say seven, but remember Preston 75? get about you know you were right i travel a bit you probably look for me in sunderland don't bother i'm not daft just posted letter there on one of my trips not a bad place compared with Chapeltown and manningham and other places worn halls to keep off streets because i feel it coming on again sorry about young lassie yours respectfully jack the ripper might write again not sure last one really deserved it whores getting younger each time old slut next time i hope Huddersfield, never again. Too small. Close call, last one. A lot of handwriting, you know, the, the sloping handwriting, the spidery handwriting on the original letter and, um, and thought, interesting, is there another murder that's, that, that's been linked? And, you know, have we got somebody here who's obviously writing writing to the police about it? So, yeah, that was, that raised... Uh, obviously conversation and interest and but we didn't know whether it was really just another crank kind of letter that was just being flagged up and bagged up for fingerprinting or whatever uh, we, we, we weren't we weren't sure and this was the one that said um, you say eight but don't forget Preston 75 now Preston 75 meant nothing to me you know literally nothing but 
colleagues around the table who who were you know had been um, in more senior positions than I were. They were saying it's referring to John Harrison, who had been murdered in Preston in 1975, and and you know we were speculating whether our commanders were now linking the two. And, and that was it. So I was aware that a letter came in. What did you think? What, what were your thoughts? I actually, I did, I, I, I was worried because having been in the incident room when the first letter came in and, read, and I read the letter like everybody else did, I saw the full letter. I read it. And what we didn't know at the time was that lying underneath a rubbish tip in Bradford was, we thought Helen Ritker was victim number seven. Victim number seven was lying under a rubbish tip in Bradford, Yvonne Pearson, who he murdered in the weeks before he killed Helen Ritker. When that became known that Helen Rip, that, that uh, Yvonne Pearson had been killed before Helen Ritker, what was thought would have made sense if these were from the genuine killer in the letter instead of just saying you know don't forget Preston 75 if you'd have said if you go to that rubbish tape at Bradford you'll find my real victim number seven because you're dealing with number eight and the fact that that wasn't in if he was wanting himself to be taken seriously we thought that should have been in that letter. Um, go and find my other victim that you've missed. And then he would have been taken serious. And that omission um, worried people. And, and I was, I, I felt, I felt there was some disquiet about it. And when, from the moment we were given the letter postage dates as alibi dates to work on for everybody, we, we, and we were interviewed, these for West Yorkshire people were interviewed. And handwriting, we were taking handwriting samples from them. We, you know, it just felt that there was a huge step change in almost belief, because up until that point, we were on it with the alibis. You had to meticulously alibi people. And, and even, you know, dates, weeks and weeks the murders happened now, where, for example, Josephine Whittaker, the date that she was killed was the date that we would have been alibiing for the most recent one. But then you could fall back on other dates because people, you know, kept diaries a lot more than, and you said, well, you know, and, and you could work out where people were. And, and um, not always, but, you, you know, we, we could. We'd take people back in time. And, and we had to take statements of alibi. We had to do everything in a very meticulous way. Once we started being um, required to also alibi on on the postal dates of those letters, it felt it was starting to come apart. Less than a week after the letter to George Oldfield, an envelope with a Sunderland postmark arrived at the Manchester offices of the Daily Mirror. It's important to note that at this point, police still thought they had seven victims, but Yvonne Pearson, who'd been killed before Helen Ritka, was still a few days away from being discovered under an old sofa in Wasteground in Bradford, making it eight in total. This letter had the same handwriting as the last. In this one, the grammar is even more convoluted than the first, and it is difficult to read, both for its poor English and its dreadful content. It said, 
Dear Sir, I've already written Chief Constable Oldfield, a man I respect, concerning the recent Ripper murders. I told him, and I'm telling you, to warn them whores I'll strike again and soon when heat cools off. About the MacDonald lassie, I didn't know that she was decent and I'm sorry I changed my routine that night. Up to murder eight now, you say, but remember Preston 75. Easy picking them up, don't even have to try. You think they'll learn, but they don't. Most are young lassies. Next time, try older one, I hope. Police haven't a clue yet, and I don't leave any. I'm very clever, and don't think of looking for any fingerprints, because there aren't any. And don't look for me up in Sunderland, because I'm not stupid. Just pass through the place. Not bad place compared with Chapeltown and Manningham. Can't walk the streets for them, whore. Don't forget, warn them. I feel it coming on again, if I get the chance. Sorry about Lassie, I didn't know. Yours respectfully. Jack the Ripper. Might write again after another one's gone. Maybe Liverpool or even Manchester again. Too hot here in Yorkshire. Bye. I've given advance warning, so it's yours and theirs fault. Why was he calling himself Jack the Ripper? And again, the reference to Preston 1975. And why did George Oldfield and his deputy, Detective Superintendent Dick Holland, take these letters so seriously? The links that, uh, that, that seemingly made uh, the commanders believe these were genuine letters from the killer were that in the letter referring to Joan Harrison, um, Joan Harrison had been killed and, in Preston in 1975. And the circumstances of her murder... Um, were similar in some respects, but dissimilar as well. And, and so there was, you, you, is, it, is it connected or not? And, and again, it's one of those you don't know at the time. You, 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 you've got to make a judgment call out. Uh, Wilf Brooks, I understand, was the superintendent leading that case in Lancashire. And he didn't think it was a Ripper murder. He thought that she'd been stamped on and um, killed by... Um, kicking and stamping in a garage and it was a robbery she was a sex worker and and she'd been killed the body had been found but it was the the circumstances in which her body were found that that drew the attention of the ripper commanders and seemingly she'd been bitten by the killer and um, there was uh, blood grouping from some semen samples that were taken from presumably some somebody who had you know had sex with her, but there was certainly a semen trace, which was a B secretor, which was only something like six or eight percent of the population had a B blood group. A B secretor means someone who has the blood group B, which is pretty rare. And secretor means that the blood type secretes into bodily fluids like saliva, urine, and semen. The person who'd bitten had got a one eighth gap between their front teeth, one eighth of an inch gap between the front teeth and whoever had killed her had left her body in a little bit of a staged kind of way by placing one of her boots uh, she was face down on the floor I believe and had placed one of her boots between her legs which was unusual and had placed a coat over now Irene Richardson who was um, murdered in Leeds after Wilma McCann. Uh, Irene Richardson's body had also been left in a staged way. Um, she hadn't been stamped 
and kicked like John Harrison. She'd been stabbed and brutally um, murdered um, with a knife and instruments. But interestingly, um, whoever had killed her had laid her boots on the back of her legs with the feet pointing outwards in a very strange way and had left a coat over So that, again, was a factor that they couldn't ignore. You know, they're scratching their heads thinking, is this connected or not? In the following weeks, Yvonne Pearson would be found in Bradford. The letters have made no reference to her. Surely they would have if they were genuine. But remember, the last letter spoke about the next victim being in Manchester. And two months after that was sent, in May 1978, 40-year-old sex worker Vera Millwood was picked up from Hume in the city. She was driven to the grounds of Manchester Royal Infirmary where she was killed. Had the letter, which was in the public domain, predicted that murder? George Oldfield thought it was genuine. Also, the killer's last few victims had all been in their 20s or late teens. Vera was 40. The last letter said his next victim would be older. Vera Millward would be the killer's only victim before a third letter arrived for Oldfield in March 1979, a year after the last. It read, Dear Officer, Sorry I haven't written, about a year to be exact, but I haven't been up north for quite a while. Wasn't kidding last time. I wrote saying the hall would be older this time and maybe I'd strike in Manchester for a change. You should have took heed. That bit about her being in hospital, funny, the lady mentioned something about it being in the same hospital before I stopped her whoring ways. The lady won't worry about hospitals now, will she? I bet you're wondering how come I haven't been to work for ages. Well, I would have been. If it hadn't been for your cursed coppers, I had the lady just where I wanted her and was about to strike when one of your curse and police cars stopped right outside the land. He must have been a dumb copper because he didn't say anything. He didn't know how close he was to catching me. Tell you the truth, I thought I was collared. The lady said, don't worry about coppers. Little did she know that bloody copper saved her neck. That was last month, so I don't know, know when I will get back on the job, but I know it won't be Chapeltown, too bloody hot there. Maybe Bradford's Manningham might write again if up north, Jack the Ripper. P.S. Did you get the letter I sent to the Daily Mirror in Manchester? Police were able to run tests on this letter, and a little over a week after it was sent, the murderer would strike again. Clues at this scene, combined with the letters and their reference to Joan Harrison in Preston 75, made George Oldfield sure the writer was the killer. When Josephine Whittaker was killed, murdered in Halifax on Savile Park, part of the serial killing, she'd been bitten on her breast by the killer. And it was shown that there was a one-eighth of an inch gap between the front teeth. When Ripper letter number three came in, they couldn't test for DNA at the time. It was only blood grouping. That's the best they could get forensically. DNA, forensic DNA hadn't come into policing at that point. And the blood group was B secreta of the person who'd licked the envelope. So all the cards were stacking towards, hmm, this is interesting, 6% of the population the blood group, we've got somebody who's licked the envelope, we've got Joan Harrison's sin. Judgment call was, this is connected. There were other factors as well, which turned out to be red herrings. One was, in one of the letters, the author of the letter 
had actually referred to Vera Millward in the, in the aftermath of Vera Millward's murder, had referred to the fact that, well, well you know, uh, she told me she'd been in that hospital. Well, she, her body was found in the grounds of Manchester Royal Infirmary. And she had been into hospital for a procedure or an operation recently. And it was thought from reading that that she must have told the killer that she'd been in hospital. What wasn't put together was that had been in the local Manchester press. It had been in the press that she'd been in because I think her husband had told the press. And that, that little thing there, you know, just added weight. If they were unaware of it, which they were at the time, they just assumed that that was adding weight to it. So all these things led to um, the belief that the author of those letters was the killer. Was there any handwriting analysis done, um, looking at the structure of the grammar of the language that was used? It was. There was, um, there was a, all sorts of experts were brought in. There were linguistic experts to decide what kind of... Uh, there were experts in the handwriting, but then experts about what does the handwriting say about the character? And of course, you know, all everybody had a view on it, and, and there were more experts that were brought in um, to look at the handwriting. And I, and I think, you know, with the handwriting, it was this person, you know, is a psychopathic nature kind of. It was all coming out, everything to fit. And um, it, it, I remember being in a briefing at Milgard actually. Well, I, I think it was um, I was on the the Josephine Whitaker or the the Jacqueline Hill murder, and there was a, a massive briefing at Milgarth Police Station with all the team on it, 150 or so detectives there, maybe 200, and George Oldfield briefed it. And, and they were describing the, the um, profile that they had from the handwriting. And this wasn't somebody who is not a dangerous person. This was fitting the criteria that this person you know, could be capable of doing something like this. But it wasn't known. None of the handwriting specialists said they thought the person was disguising the handwriting. Not one of them. June 1979, there was development. Tell us how you found out about that. I was working on the Josephine Whitaker murder investigation at Halifax. And as a detective constable, we worked in, in pairs. Um, I was working with a, a guy called Roy Bowden. And we were going and doing our, what we called action. So from the incident room, uh, the incident room generated actions, which was literally an action on a piece of a form, a carbonated form. You had the top copy given to you as the detectives and you'd put it in your file, off you went. And, and we had within our, um, in our, in our briefcase, all the information we needed. You know, we had all the murder dates, the alibi dates and so on and so forth, because it was very traditionally done at that time on alibi dates, that's what we were um, on murder dates and so on and so forth. So myself and Roy, we, we were doing our work and doing these long shifts and days off cancelled. Uh, Josephine Whitaker had been murdered in the April, as, as you said, Rob, and um, it was full steam ahead. There was, this was the one we were going to catch, this guy. And we had radios and... Um, obviously before mobile phones and even pages, I think at the time, so we're on police shows. And we got a call saying um, our, our, our normal briefing times were something like um, eight o'clock in the morning, we'd brief at Halifax Police Station. And then the debriefing would be at nine o'clock at night or something like that. 
And um, so we'd we'd be expecting we, it was it was towards tea time. It was five or six o'clock, and we got a call on radio saying, "Right, um, from Mr. Oldfield, uh, he wants all the team to um, report to uh, the uh, the courtroom at Halifax at say seven o'clock." And we thought, yeah, we've got him. We must have, something's broken. We've got him. He's going to tell us we've got him. And we were absolutely buzzing. You know, we thought this is a, you know, we'd never been called back before, uh, before the, you know, the appointed debriefing time. Something significant has happened here. And this was now an hour away. You know, we thought for an hour, we thought, we're driving back to Halifax to the police station. Oh, what's happened? What's happened? All the de- detectives are arriving, and it was unusual for us not to have it in the normal debriefing room. So we knew that there must be a reason for this, and there were a lot of people piling in to the courtroom, and it was an old Victorian courtroom. And um, there was not enough room at, at the in the front where you know the barristers or the solicitors and people sit. So that was all full in those in those um, rows and seats there. So myself and oh, must have been. 100 others were up in the gallery around the top so the whole place was packed and um, George Oldfield and Dick Holland came in and sat George Oldfield sat in the magistrate's chair and Dick sat next to it and they had a tape recorder on 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 uh, a table in front of them and you know box standard of its time little press tape recorder nothing fancy and they had they had this set up already, and George Oldfield, you could have heard a pin drop as soon as he started speaking, because we, we didn't know what he was going to say. We just got no idea. And what he said was, he said um, that they had received a tape, uh, which he's going to play for us, and that they are satisfied that this is from the killer. And he was saying it in a tone that was very, very sombre and serious. And... He said, you know, uh, we cannot go into the detail why we believe it is, but you have to take it from us. Our view is this is the killer, and I want you to listen to this very carefully, every one of you, to see if you can recall anyone you have questioned that has an accent or a voice like this. And the whole place was just silent. It was deathly silent. And... He went click and played it. And they, in, I'm Jack. I'm Jack. I see you are still having no look catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George. But Lord, you are no nearer catching me now than four years ago when I started. Next time, the team of more than 100 detectives hears the tape in full. I could feel almost the hair standing up on the back of my neck. At the same time, thinking, oh, I was straining like everyone to, to hear it, thinking, have I questioned something Analysts identify the neighbourhood of the man behind the message. The experts, the voice experts who listened to this, said the author of that tape, is from the castle town area of Sunderland. George Oldfield takes the monumental gamble that the recordings from the killer, not everyone's so sure. We 
were eliminating on handwriting and on post postage dates of letters. Now, it was going a step further into eliminating just on uh, on um, Geordie accident. So this was the the latest directive from the top. This was now becoming, we thought, a little bit dangerous. And while the inquiry looks at Sunderland, in Bradford and Leeds, the murders continue. The three women lost their lives after that. I mean, the involvement of the hoaxer. Uh, would three women have, have survived afterwards? Nobody knows. If you want to see evidence from this case, watch video clips with Chris or learn more, just subscribe to the Behind the Crimes site. The link is in the show notes. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy. It's June 1979, and we're in an old courthouse in Halifax in West Yorkshire. More than 100 detectives working on Britain's biggest manhunt have been summoned by the lead investigator, Assistant Chief Constable George Oldfield. He's trying to catch a killer nicknamed the Yorkshire Ripper. A young detective constable, Chris Gregg, squeezes into a high balcony among the crowd of police. The lead detective sits below in the high chair of the courtroom. In front of him, a cassette machine. He presses a button, and across the wood-panelled room, a voice starts to ring out. It was deathly silent and he went click and played it I'm Jack I see you are still having no look catching me I have the greatest respect for you George but lord you are no nearly catching me now than four years ago when I started and they I'm Jack. The boys are letting you down, George, in that Charlie accent. I reckon your boys are letting you down, George. And it felt as though this person was talking to us, yeah, or talking to George Oldfield about how we let him down. And um, I was nearly caught in Jackletown. They can't be much good, can they? The only time they came near catching me was a few months back in Chapeltown. I was listening and I could feel almost the hair standing up on the back of my neck. Over the last year, George Oldfield has received taunting letters from a man claiming to be the killer. Letters the experienced detective is convinced are genuine. Now, a recording from the writer, where before they had just handwriting to go on, now there's a voice. At the rate I'm going... I should be in the book of records. 
I think it's 11 up now, isn't it? Well, I'll keep on going for quite a while yet. The words are similar, the message the same. I'm the killer, I'm one step ahead of you. And a warning. I'm not quite sure when I'll strike again. But it will be definitely sometime this year. Maybe September, October. Even sooner if I get the chance. The talking on the tape lasts for 3 minutes and 14 seconds, ending with this eerie taunt. Well, it's been nice chatting to you, George. Yours, Chuck the Ripper. No good looking for fingerprints. You should know by now. It's plain as a whistle. See you soon. Bye. Hope you like the catchy tune at the end. Ha It cuts to a song, Thank You For Being A Friend, by Andrew Gold. Now, this had made number 42 in the charts in the previous year, and it would later become famous when re-recorded, it would be used as the theme tune to the Golden Girls sitcom. There's nothing funny about the impact of the tape on detectives. A northeastern accent? That's new. Soon, when the tape's released to the public, the man who recorded it would become known as Wearside Jack, after the river which flows through Sunderland. Is this the most significant lead in the hunt for the Yorkshire Ripper? And we questioned dozens, hundreds of people in the time I'd been on it now, um, on, this, on the investigation for nearly a year. And I thought, who have a question like that? And straining every muscle almost to think, have I spoken to? And then going home after that, and everybody was now talking about this in the investigation team, who the hell is this? Geordie accent, Geordie accent. And thinking, remember, yeah, not sleeping properly, thinking, I was thinking, almost going through everybody I'd spoken to, thinking, did they have an accent like that? I could not get this voice out of my mind. My name's Robert Murphy. This is Behind the Crimes. A word of warning, this is a crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions you might find affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This three-part miniseries describes the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, who went by a nickname deemed appropriate in the 1970s. This phrase is extremely distressing to the families of the victims, and I have avoided using it wherever possible. But sometimes, unfortunately, it is the only term I can use. This miniseries is called Deadly Deception, Episode 2, Wearside Jack. The tape seemed to change everything, but many investigators had big doubts. Then, of course, with the handwriting and the huge then, uh, publicity that went with this, that came in the coming days, it just was like a juggernaut going. And what happened was that the, um, the experts, the voice experts who listened to this, said that in their view, and they were absolutely right with this, in their view, the, um, the author of that tape is from the Castletown area of Sunderland. So, wow. 
So suddenly we've got a Sunderland connection coming into the West Yorkshire and Manchester uh, inquiry. And quickly, part of our team was taken up to Sunderland and to work with the, you know, the, the Sunderland police in trying to find the, the guy up in that neck of the woods because there were also dates on, stamped on the envelopes and on the tape packaging when these had been posted, and they were all postmarked, Sunderland, 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 various dates of posting. And quickly, the emphasis changed. And this was in, in one of the major mistakes that was made in, in not keeping the investigation separate. Find the person who sent the tapes and the letter, find the killer. They were put together. And suddenly in our briefcases, we didn't just have the murder dates of Wilma McCann, Josephine Whitaker, and Ritka as alibi dates. We had the dates, the letters were posted. And this was now becoming, we thought, a little bit dangerous. And one of the other things that within the investigation team, like all institutions, the staff talk, and we were talking, you know, the detectives, and there were, there were schools of thought saying, oh, this, is, this, is, this doesn't feel safe that we're doing this, eliminating on these letters, because what if they're not right? And so there was this disquiet that was amongst the team. But George Oldfield was convinced. You'll remember he had good reasons to think the tapes and letters were genuine. The envelopes were licked by someone who had a blood group B. The serial killer had blood group B, as did the killer of Joan Harrison. Remember, she was the woman found in Preston in November 1975, a murder which hadn't yet been formally linked to these attacks. Oldfield ignored intelligence and analysis from victims and experts. Some women had managed to survive an attack by the serial killer. Two in particular had told police their attacker had an accent from Yorkshire. They, and international crime-fighting experts, said... The tapes were a deception. The FBI, I think, had said it was a hoax. Um, and also Olive Smelt, Marcella Claxton had both given descriptions of their attacker who was linked to the the murders and clear West Yorkshire accent. But they were discounted. Yes, they did. And, and they were absolutely adamant this was not the accent of the person who had attacked them. What was happening at the time, though, I, I remember, there were a lot of different descriptions of the attacker coming in from various cases. On two of the murders, a man with a Land Rover with ginger hair had been seen. And this was a big thing. You know, so, and then on another murder, a man with a Jason King moustache, then a man with a beard. And I think all these things with witnesses' information, because half the time you're assuming a case is connected, but you're not entirely sure. <laughs> you haven't got a DNA um, profile to say that case is the same as that one. It's circumstances. And, and, and I think what was happening was that people who were making the decisions and, um, you know, the, the, the senior commanders, they were juggling all this information and thinking, well, what if Claxton, I, I'm, I'm speaking for them now, I'm, I'm only having been in that position myself where until you know the answer, when everything is sublimingly obvious and you think, why didn't we get that sooner? But until that happens, the minute before you put that light switch on and know who it is, the second, the millisecond before you put it on, you don't know. And, and everything is different. 
and you've got hundreds of thousands of people it could be and all these things various information flying because there's tons of information different descriptions once you know everything fits up until that point it could be the ginger haired guy with the land rover and i suspect that what they were thinking was yeah okay all these witnesses are probably giving their version of events but they might be wrong. You know, they've been attacked. Could they have got it wrong? The guy could have been trying to put on a Yorkshire accent. I don't, you know, they, I don't know what they were thinking at the time to to do that. Um, but um, they came down on the balance of everything to believing they were genuine. And, and you know, the, the rest is history. Three women lost their lives after that. I mean, the involvement of the hoaxer. Uh, would three women have, have survived afterwards? Nobody knows. Um, nobody knows the answer to that. But certainly his involvement did not help that investigation because it stripped a lot of resources away from where they were needed, back in West Yorkshire. It took the investigation, which was on the tracks, off the tracks, well and truly off the tracks. Yes, the tape was sent to police in June 1979. In the September of that year, the killer murdered a 21-year-old student in Bradford called Barbara Leach. Nearly a year would pass before his next killing in August 1980, Marguerite Walls in Leeds. And after three more attacks on women in which they survived, he claimed his 13th murder victim that we know about in November 1980. Her name was Jacqueline Hill. While women were being murdered in Yorkshire, a large part of the inquiry was still focused on Sunderland. There was 5,000 billboards put up, 300 newspaper ads, you know, nightclubs would be stopped so they could play this tape to nightclubbers. A million pounds, I think, was spent on on the, the publicity campaign. It was huge. I mean, anyone who was um, living in this part of the world at the time up in, in Yorkshire, it was massive. You know, this was all over the news. It was all over the towns. It was just, for several years, it was the biggest thing happening in this part of the world. And the money that was spent with the publicity of this, it was designed to quickly find someone who would contact the police to say that handwriting and that voice is so and so a little bit like what happened many years later in this part of the world by coincidence with Michael Sands who murdered Julie Dart and kidnapped Stephanie Slater? It happened with Crime Watch. His voice was played, somebody rang me. And you know, that's what they were hoping for years before pre Michael Sands. And importantly, is this voice becomes forever linked with the Ripper now, they're seen as the same person. and a man called Peter Sutcliffe had been questioned nine times and had been regarded by some detectives as a good suspect who required further investigation. Was it Detective Constables Andrew Lapchew and Graham Greenwood had said we should be looking at this man, but that was dismissed? I look at the fact that he was questioned that amount of times and not arrested certainly towards the end of it, as, as, as a little bit with disbelief. Um, the, none of the officers had the full deck of information when they went to see Sutcliffe, certainly not in the earlier stages when they went to see him. And he was being alibied. He was picked up through lines of inquiry that had been designed to get the killer 
In some ways, the inquiry to catch the serial killer was brilliant. In a moment, Chris Gregg will describe some outstanding policing. In three separate ways, Peter Sutcliffe's name came up. Firstly, in what became known as the £5 note inquiry, led by Greater Manchester Police's Jack Ridgway. Secondly, West Yorkshire Police's Jim Hobson set up two inquiries, the cross-area searches of red light districts and a tyre track inquiry. But none of the detectives who interviewed Sutcliffe realised the full picture of the man they were talking to. Those three lines of inquiry did the trick in terms of identifying the killer. Ridgeway's team from Manchester did a superb job, absolutely superb with a capital S, in the £5 note that was recovered from the victim of Jean Jordan, who'd been murdered by the serial killer. There are lots of names in these episodes, but you may remember me mentioning Jean Jordan last time. In October 1977, the 20-year-old mother of two, a sex worker, disappeared from Manchester. Her body was found ten days later. She'd been mutilated after her death, police believed. This made them think her killer had returned a few days after he'd taken her life. But why? Why come back? Detectives found her handbag a short distance away. Inside the bag's secret compartment was a newly printed £5 note. It had a serial number, AW51121565. Had the killer wanted to retrieve his money? Did he think it was traceable? He was right to worry. A serial number on a £5 note led detectives to the door of a man called Peter Sutcliffe. Ridgeway's team, working with the middle bank at Shipley, they had thousands upon thousands of, of, of ways, people who this, this £5 note could have ended, ended up in the hands of. But they, through a, a real dedicated, detailed piece of work, they narrowed this down. They, they felt it had come from a payroll. And they narrowed this down to about 34 firms with some six or 7,000 staff working amongst them. Uh, one of those firms was um, T.W. Clark's in Bradford. One of the employees was Peter Suckley, the haulage company, wagon driver. And he, amongst with all the other staff, was questioned. He was one of the, one of the nine times he was questioned. And, of course, he was um, alibied by his wife. He was one of just thousands, so nothing, OK, you can accept that in a way. He's alibied, you know, why does he show out more than others? The cross-area sightings brought Sutcliffe's name up to detectives again. The system was set up in Huddersfield, Bradford, Leeds, Manchester. 33 observation points, covert, where detectives, 100 detectives every night were spread around these areas. And I did this for some weeks myself in Huddersfield. Sat in a car in the red light area, positioned so that you could see the rear number plate, not the front one, because the headlights were dazzling at night. So all the observation points were, were set. And the, the theory behind it, which was spot on, was that the killer is potentially driving through red light areas, looking, weighing things up, and these are the towns that they maybe are visiting. So the idea was, put detectives covertly in these areas, in cars where they could just be tucked away in the shadows, taking all the car numbers. 
but people were slowing down and punting. And that's what happened in all these various towns, or, or, or these towns, Huddersfield, Bradford, Leeds, Manchester. And cross-area sightings became a line of inquiry. So as the senior investigating officer would, would decide, right, how, how am I going to manage this? Because we can't go and see it. And, and, and the first night, there was something like 2,000 cars, you know. What they were doing was... Um, cross-area sighting, so all this information would go, be fed that night, all typed up, and the police national computer was in its early stages, and they were trying to get information out. But a line of inquiry was, if there was somebody who had visited two areas, they were called a cross-area sighting. If they visited three areas, they were a triple-area sighting. So cross-area sightings, they were a priority. So I would go as a detective then and question people who'd been flagged up as a cross-area sighting between Bradford and Leeds in the red light areas. But we didn't go and knock on the door and say, hey, uh, Mr. So-and-so, you've been seen in two red light districts at 10 o'clock at night over the last few weeks. What were you doing? Because that would blow the whole cover. <laughs> this would cover us. So we had to go and um, just try and elicit information from them without them re realising why we're asking. And so it was, it was all a bit cat and mouse. Sutcliffe had been seen on a triple area sighting and there was an, an action race to go and see him. And the detectives who saw him at that point, they didn't have the full information about he'd, he'd been on the five pound note inquiry in uh, Jack Ridgeway's inquiry that was found on Jean Jordan. They didn't have the full information. And the third inquiry, looking at the tyre tracks, police could have noticed information linking him to the fourth murder. One of the other factors that we had, as in, uh, which we had to do when we went to see suspects, was that the scene of the Irene Richardson murder was some tyre tracks. And in those days, cross plies and radials were the order of the day and you, you didn't mix them on axles and all this stuff. Well, there were um, two of the tyre tracks from memory were ESO uh, make tyres, and one was, um, and the other were in India and ESO. And they were of a certain combination on the axles. So we had to very discreetly, when we were going to see the suspects, we had to check the car, obviously, and we had to, because we were looking for these tyre combinations. The tyre investigation had um, narrowed down to something like 55,000 cars that could have had this combination of tyres on. And in there were a load of different cars, but one of them was a Corsair. But they were in with all sorts of other cars. It wasn't just Corsair. I'm pretty sure that, from what I've learned afterwards, that certainly a Corsair was there with those tyres on when some of the officers went and spoke to them on one of those nine occasions, and they weren't checked. I think it was there to be had. And... There were elements that, you know, and towards the end, he got rid of that car then. I think it was, you know, there was one occasion when they could have had it. And then he got rid of that car and he had another car. So when they came, he had a sunbeam rapier or something like that. Of course, they didn't have the tyres on it. There were other details. In April 1979, Josephine Whitaker was murdered, bitten by her attacker, a man with a gap in his teeth. Sutcliffe had one. Now, this was pre-computers in inquiry rooms. And the records were all on paper, 
a mountain of paper. Complex cases were harder to solve before computers, but they were solvable if the system of index cards and cross-referencing was done properly. Mistakes in the inquiry room and by some detectives on the streets meant Sutcliffe evaded capture. Also, importantly, he had the Bradford accent two of his surviving victims described, not a Sunderland accent from the tape. The fly on the fly paper, getting the killer in the net, the lines of inquiry, we're doing it. It's just that the guy's knocking on the door and the people, you know, in the incident room who were charged with getting all the information correctly filed so it could be pulled out, cross-referenced, there were breakdowns. There were breakdowns in the systems of administration and, I think, on the detective side at the front end there, you know, that. and, you know, you mentioned that there was um, an occasion where uh, the two detectives who'd spoken to him were really, really suspicious, and rightly so. Rightly so, they should have been suspicious because of the information that they had, they didn't have the full uh, jigsaw there, but they, they had certain pieces. And they were rightly suspicious of this guy. You know, he'd been, he'd been alibied by his mother-in-law on one occasion, saying that, um, oh, on the mur- it, was, oh, it was the night that, um, that it had, Manchester police had worked out the night that he must have gone back to take the £5 note from uh, Gene Jordan that he'd left. And that was an alibi uh, date. And so he was seen as a result of that because um, the £5 note, where were you on that night? And his mother-in-law gave a statement saying that he, oh, he was at a housewarming party. But what she failed to mention was that he'd taken a couple of people home from the housewarming party and been gone for hours. Yeah, because he'd gone over to Manchester. So all these things were playing in. So, yeah, the, there were some monumental mistakes made there. And what happened when he, the two detectives who had serious suspicion about him, and, and, and I, know, um, I know one of the detectives well, um, the, detective, the detectives went back and, and reported back saying, and at the time there was a, a directive out, you couldn't just go and arrest someone without having George Oldfield's permission, so you couldn't just spontaneously arrest someone it was now there was a barrier you know you had to go and seek permission to do that before you obviously didn't want people acting on that their own initiative to that degree so um they went back and and spoke to um the senior commanders um about it and, and pleading the case you know this guy needs more looking at and they were told that oh, if he hasn't got a Geordie accent, because this was now, things had descended even further by this point. We were eliminating on handwriting and on post, postage dates of letters. Now, it was going a step further into eliminating just on, uh, on um, Geordie accent. So this was the, the latest directive from the top. So... When those officers went and, and said, you know, we think this guy, Peter Sipcliffe from Bradford, blah, 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 has he got a Geordie accent? Well, no, but we still think he's, yeah, he needs looking at. And they were, they were dismissed. Now, why did Colland dismiss them? I don't know. He, he obviously felt that 
Um, we've got to stick to the elimination criteria. We've set it. This, you know, there's there's no movement around that. A fatal mistake. You know, it, it, he should have been he should have been investigated further than or clearly investigated further. He should have been coming out in handcuffs that day. On the night of January the 2nd, 1981, two police officers on patrol spotted a car with false number plates. This was in Sheffield, a place the serial killer hadn't operated before. The driver was with a sex worker. It didn't feel right to the officers. He matched some of the physical descriptions of the killer. The man said he was bursting for a pee, so they let him go before arresting him. He was called Peter Sutcliffe. The South Yorkshire officers checked him with their West Yorkshire colleagues and he was taken for questioning. A later search of the area where he'd gone to urinate found a knife, a hammer and a rope. The game was up. It was the instinct, wasn't it, of two police officers or a police officer in South Yorkshire in Sheffield who, who ended up catching Sutcliffe. What was that moment like for you? I've had several moments in my career where that sense of relief um, is overwhelming in a way because you just feel that you know who this person is now. It's finished. You know, nobody else is going to lose their life. And, and I can think of another couple of cases that, that that feeling was very similar to. He wasn't going to stop. But I remember just sensing that, oh, my God, thank God, it, we, it's been caught. And, you know, the guys in, um, in Sheffield... Who, who made the arrest, um, they, they did a, a really good job there. But a guy called Detective Inspector Desert Boyle did a superb job as well. And he was part of the Ripper murder team, um, just a top detective. And he, thankfully, you know how you need the right people in the right place at the right time. Desert Boyle was, uh, was the guy who was working as the the detective that night, the detective inspector that night who took that call um, and he was sharp as a needle go back, check the drums where he was found and they found that he slipped a hammer down and he was directing things and he got um, on it very quickly and it was Des um, and his colleague who um, brought Sutcliffe back up to Yorkshire, uh, back up to West Yorkshire and, and interviewed him and yeah, did yeah, got huge respect for Des. Um, he's never spoken about that, but um, huge respect for him. It was, um, as you described, a moment of huge uh, relief, not just, of course, among the police policing world, but I, I think the country as a as a whole. But at what point did it become evident that Peter Sutcliffe did indeed have a Bradford accent and not um, a Sunderland accent? And what were you thinking? What were what were the thoughts then? Was it just relief that he's caught and let's look at that another day? Or was, oh my God, we've made a huge mistake in some ways here? That wasn't the feeling at the time. At the feeling at the time, it was just incredible relief that this guy has been caught. The fact that he hadn't got the accent, that was, um, that was something that, we, yeah, it, it added up. He hadn't got the accent because there, were, you know, there was that disquiet there anyway that this wasn't quite right. Um, but in terms of the arrest that had been made, it was it was just an incredible relief that we're, we're not going to be going to any more murder scenes. It was that you know that sense of 
this is over. You know, nobody else is going to lose the life. The whole, the whole um, county was um, on, on a state of high alert and fear. But no, the, when he was arrested, it was, um, it was now, what, what has he done? You know, have the murders that have been attributed to him, has he done these? What attacks has he done? What else has he done? And I know that was the kind of, from an investigator's point, it was more about what, right, Des and his team who were dealing with him, you know, what are they going to find out now? What, what has he done, this guy? When in custody, Sutcliffe was diagnosed with paranoid schizophrenia. He admitted the manslaughter of 13 women on the grounds of diminished responsibility, but he denied their murder. He was later convicted and imprisoned. One count he was not charged with was the murder of Joan Harrison in Preston, 1975. He um, was sentenced to life uh, in um, May 1981. At that point... What thought was there towards the tapes about whether they should be investigated and what work should be looked at there? In terms of the tapes and, and the what was now the hoax, you know, it wasn't known until that time it was a hoax. The hoax, suspected possibly, but not known. Um, it seemed to fall into the background. The, the main thrust was, what has Peter Sutcliffe done? And there was plenty of other crimes and murders that he was suspected of. He was convicted of 13 murders and seven attempts. Um, there was a lot of, obviously, is he mad or is he bad, you know, with his defence at court. Uh, this was all swilling around. And I think the whole country just wanted him to be um, convicted of what he'd done, the crimes he'd done, and, and fairly and justly convicted. They didn't want him to be having any kind of um, defence accepted that was not correct. You know, so focus was on the trial, focus was on him and what, what he'd done and what he hadn't done. The actual letter writer and the sender of the tapes just seemed to fall into history a little bit. And I think that the force as a whole at this point in, say, early 80s, the early 80s, it was a period of West Yorkshire police now, there was a stigma hanging over the force then and lasted for four years um, from this case, you know, the mistakes that were made on the case. And it was tarnished, you know, and rightly so in, in, in many ways. But the force image had been tarnished, undoubtedly. And I, as a young detective, was just starting my career. And I was still 24, 24, and just had only been a detective a few months when appointed onto this case. So I was still at the very start of my career. And, um, and I, I felt it, as colleagues would, you know, that West Yorkshire Police's good name, which it had until that point, would be trashed. You know, it was trashed. Next time. The killer's in prison, but the hoaxer is free. Decades have passed and Chris Gregg, now a senior officer, wants to track him down using new science. We've got DNA. Can we have a go at them, you know? Oh, no, no, no. They've gone. They've gone, those letters. How the smallest sample gives Chris Gregg a name. Having worked with scientists over the years, I always know that some of the scientists often will keep a little bit of something from the item they're examining because they don't know what advances may come later. 
And, you know, they may cut out a, a bit of a blood sample, for example, and just keep a bit, send some for testing, keep a piece of the garment carefully preserved. And for the first time, face to face with Wearside Jack. 25 years on, his voice has aged, but it's as chilling as ever. I say you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord, you are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy. Peter Sutcliffe had been caught, but what about the man who had pretended to be the serial killer? What about the man who had laid that dark deception, the man nicknamed Wearside Jack? For nearly three years between March 1978 and Sutcliffe's capture in January 1981, the letters were regarded as among the most important exhibits in British crime fighting, and experts at the time had performed every experiment possible to squeeze the tiniest bit of science out of them which might lead to the identity of the author. But now it's the early 2000s, and they're lost. Chris Gregg, who was a rookie detective back in the late 1970s, is now a detective chief superintendent setting up West Yorkshire Police's elite homicide and major inquiry team. It's busy, but at the back of his mind is that case, that hoax from years before. Who is Wearside Jack? Where is he now? How can he bring him to justice? For Chris Gregg, this is unfinished business. This is Behind the Crimes. I'm Robert Murphy. A word of warning, this is a true crime podcast. There may be language and descriptions you might find affecting. Listener discretion is advised. This three-part miniseries describes the hunt for Peter Sutcliffe, who went by a nickname deemed appropriate in the 1970s. This phrase is extremely distressing to the families of the victims, and I've avoided using it wherever possible, but sometimes, unfortunately, it is the only term I can use. This miniseries is called Deadly Deception, Episode 3, Between Two Slides of Glass. Identity of the sender of the the letters and, and tips wasn't the highest priority in the force at that point because they hadn't caught this person anyway through the natural investigation process. So were they going to catch him now? I think they just thought, you yeah, know, but draw a line under this. And I went about my career um, never forgetting this and um, but also thinking, well, hmm, who, who is that person? Who, who, who was that person who did this? And, but once DNA, forensic DNA, started to becoming um, vital in you know, police investigation, that piqued my interest in this. There was no great appetite uh, to start, for me to start going in rattling cages about, let's sort the Yorkshire Ripper hooks around. But um, 
as soon as I thought DNA, and the first one of them, I thought those letters that had gummed seals on the in the envelopes that we got the bee secreted from, and on the stamps, yeah, it can't be beyond the wit of man that if we've got those envelopes, we've got a half a chance of getting some DNA from the saliva of the person who licked them. We got a blood grouping back in you know 1980 at uh, 1978. I remember, I think I was a detective inspector, so this would have been early 90s, 1990, 91 or something. And I remember saying to the detective chief superintendent, head of CID for the force, you know those, um, those letters and tapes, we've got DNA, can we ever go at them, you know? Oh, no, 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 they've gone, they've gone, those letters. Where have they gone? They've gone. They've just, you know, we don't know where they are, kind of thing. Okay, so then I was up another rank then, and um, Detective Chief Inspector was another head of CID. And a few years had gone on, and, and uh, I remember having a conversation with this particular um, Chief Superintendent who had worked on the Ripper case. So I thought, and I had a conversation with him, and he just said, like he said, there's been three inquiries done, three reviews done over the years. They're gone. And, um, you know, we don't know where they are. They've just gone. They can't be found. I thought, uh, this is a bit of a brick wall. And um, so when I was appointed head of CID as Detective Chief Superintendent, and um, I was in a position where I could do something about it, but... I was also conscious that at that time, which was 2004 or five, we had an awful lot going on in the force. So I was picking up head of CID. We'd had the 7-7 bombers on our patch in Newsby and Leeds. We were working with SL-13. We'd got all this. We just had um, PC Sharon Beshenevsky shot through a bungle on robbery in Bradford and Theresa Milburn, a colleague shot. We had a lot going on. There was a lot of major crime happening. And, you know, I've got to be conscious here. I wasn't going to be starting to launch a huge investigation into something that happened 25, 26 years previously. But I thought we can do this in and amongst a piece of work that needs doing anyway through our cold case team. And I wanted them to archive the Ripper material because what I found was when I sat at my desk for the first day as head of CID in my inbox. I don't believe it. Right at the bottom of the inbox was a, a letter from somebody who had said, I think that person who sent the Ripper hoax tapes was on a number 49 bus in Bradford. And I heard this. I thought, still 20, getting letters in. And it wasn't any, anything. And it just it made me realise it. And we were getting uh, requests from the media quite a lot about the Ripper still. And I found that we needed to be able to answer these questions properly as well. The Ripper material at that point was spread all over West Yorkshire in terms of there may be some documents in a, in a loft in Halifax, there'd be some exhibits in a cellar in Huddersfield, in Leeds there'd be... Uh, it was all over the place. And I thought this needs just centralising. And we we have <clears throat> we we have a major crime store uh, where all the major crime exhibits are stored. 
And with modern systems of property, uh, uh, property and exhibit recording, they're all electronically done now. And this was happening in 2004 anyway. So West Yorkshire Police, like other forces, was electronically archiving all its information. But of course, the Ripper, that was all still out in, in garages, sheds, lofts and everywhere. So I, I tasked uh, two pieces of work. One was to bring all the Ripper material that we knew still existed together under one roof and electronically archive it, which has been done. And secondly, locate what happened to those Ripper letters and tape. I want a timeline of where they are. The detectives went to the um, laboratory at Weatherby, which covers this part of the world, and there was a, there was a drawer marked Ripper letters and tape. So I thought, this is easy. Open the drawer, but it was empty, of course. And, um, and so the laboratory management said, we haven't got anything. We tracked the process down and spoke to the various scientists who were involved at the time and the detectives, and <clears throat> we found out that the letters were taken down to the Lambeth Laboratory in London, um, and they were tested for fingerprints. They used a process called ninhydrin, which is used today, and it turns the paper purple. And so what they'd done, before they knew it would be a destructive process, but they take beautiful photographic, you know, records of, of all the letters. They were all there. We'd got all those, but we hadn't got the originals, which we wanted. So the envelopes and the um, and the letters were sent to Lambeth. The scientists who we spoke to who tested them said that they 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 put so much ninhydrin on them, trying to lift fingerprints from them. They tried, tried again, tried again. Didn't just turn them purple; it turned the whole play, paper black. And they had to fumigate the lab with the chemical smells. It was a health and safety hazard. They had, they had to fumigate the whole lab. So we knew that these were destroyed now. We knew that they'd gone and they said they were destroyed. Everywhere Chris Gregg turned seemed to be an investigative dead end. Scientists had destroyed the letters, desperate to lift prints. In fact, they'd nearly damaged themselves in the process. But they were not the only way Wearside Jack had contacted George Oldfield. We then got a scientist who'd um, dealt with the tape. And we traced the scientist who had actually got the tape at home with him, the original tape, taking it home with him. But, so we got the tape back, the original tape. Um, we got um, nothing from the letters. But one of the things I wanted to be absolutely certain about was that there, weren't this, that there wasn't anything left at Weatherby particularly, because having worked with scientists over the years, I always know that some of the scientists often will keep a little bit of something from the item they're examining because they don't know what advances make them later. And, you know, they may cut out uh, a, a bit of a blood sample, for example, and just keep a bit, send some for testing, keep a piece of the garment carefully preserved. And so um, I um, asked it to be put into writing that I wanted the management of the laboratory to confirm categorically there was nothing at that laboratory uh, connected to those letters or envelopes. And time went by, time went by. And we suddenly got a call 
um, that Valerie Tomlinson, you know, who could have given the biggest, you know, yeah, thanks to him. I've kissed her, she was there, honestly, it was unbelievable. She said, she, and Valerie's a top biologist, she'd been searching in a um, cage at the lab, where all lots of exhibits are, and in a place it shouldn't have been was a glass slide. Um, and in the, trapped between two pieces of glass slides, little glass slides, was a perfectly preserved two centimetre section of the seal from envelope three of the Ripper letters that the scientist had preserved. And she blew the dust off it, and there it was. Between two slides of glass was the last remaining fragment, a two-centimetre scrap of envelope, the last forensic link, the last chance to identify Wearside Jack. Could the scientist Valerie Tomlinson get any DNA from this sample? And if she could, would it match with anyone on the National DNA Database? If the hoaxer hadn't offended, he wouldn't be on it. There would be nothing, no one, to match the DNA to. Two weeks later, Chris Gregg was in a meeting in Wakefield. Senior officers around a table. It was the 18th of October 2005, 27 years after the first letter was sent, 26 years after the tape. Chris noticed his phone ringing. Calling him was the head of the major crime section of the forensic team at Weatherby, a scientist called Peter Grant. Chris wondered if it were a result from the DNA test on the sliver of paper. So he made an excuse and slipped out of the room. I've known Peter many years and he was, you know, the, one of the senior guys at the lab. He rang me and he, he literally said, Chris, and, and Peter does not get excited. Um, Peter is one of the most, um, what am I saying this, most calm and controlled people, even in the, you know, I, I, I do get excited. You know, and uh, I remember him saying, Chris, I have some news for you. <laughs> and uh, yes, Peter, I, I was... Um, We've got a profile from that uh, DNA from the envelope. Yes, sir, Peter. <laughs> and uh, he said, uh, it's a man called John Humble. I said, is he from Sunderland? He said, yes. I said, thank God. Right. Science can give police some certainty these days, even in what might seem, on a first appearance, to be a difficult case to prove. The lab said the suspect a man called John Humble, was a billion times more likely to have licked the envelope shut than anyone else. Humble lived in Sunderland. Within hours, um, you know, we, we'd sent a team up to Northumbria and uh, linking in with our colleagues up there to find out a lot more. And, and, and we had John Humble in custody that evening. It was literally, let's get on to this. Humble lived in Sunderland. He was a sometime labourer and oftentimes heavy drinker. He'd been married once but was now living with his brother in what can only be described as deep squalor. He was known as John the Bagman because he was seen going to and from um, the off-licence a couple of times a day, you know, to buy, you know, cider and things like that. He was, he was not in a good state. Um, heavy, heavy alcoholic. His, his life, I think, had obviously not gone well in recent times. Um, petty, petty criminal, a dislike of the police, I think a bit anti-police in his background. When he was arrested, he, he was completely, you know, um, drunk. Um, he was brought down to uh, West Yorkshire. It took him, <clears throat> before we could interview him, 
probably about 24 hours to sober up before he was fit for interview. His community was completely oblivious that the man who was once one of the most wanted men in Britain was the guy they saw as the village drunk. When had John Humble appeared on the National DNA database? He'd only appeared on the database about five years previously. He'd never been on it um, in his career as an active criminal. Um, but, but because they weren't taking DNA and, you know, and, until probably the early 90s, routinely for people committing crime or mid-90s for people committing crime. But in 2000, he committed a, a... I can't remember what it was. It was something very petty. And um, he'd been put on the database. So he'd only been on about five years. But that didn't prove he was Wearside Jack. Just proved he'd licked an envelope nearly 30 years previously. He could argue he was given it by the real hoaxer. They would need to interview John Humble. Could they corroborate the DNA hit? What would he say? They came up with a plan to get John Humble to open up. We developed a strategy. We have an, in, an interview strategy in modern policing. It was an interview strategy with um, interview advisors and so on and so forth. So I was you know, the heart of all this. And, and uh, first interview, it would just be a getting to know you and gently asking him straightforward questions about it. And then interview number three, was where the DNA was going to be dropped on him. And so that was the plan, anyway, and a series of like five interviews planned out. So we, I was monitoring it with a colleague uh, in, a, in a adjacent room somewhere, and the, inter- and the two detectives who were interviewing started off, and he had his lawyer in there and a social worker. So he was now sobered up, sat, detectives, interview, all on tape and being uh, filmed as well. And it was, it was a bit of cat and mouse. First interview, the detectives are asking him, um, you know, did you send the tapes? Did you send the letter? I'm watching video footage of that interview now. It's a small white police room. Two men, detectives, sit in shirts and ties, looking across a black desk. Huddled over a file is Humble's lawyer. John Humble wears a bright blue top, long-sleeved, rolled to the elbows. He has dark grey hair, scruffily arranged with a widow's peak. He has a handlebar moustache the same colour. Under that moustache is a mouth which remains firmly shut. He shakes his head, his communication just visual, he stays silent. Detectives have no way of hearing if he has that distinctive Wearside Jack voice. Tell me in detail, please, everything that you know about those letters and tell me in detail now, please. And he was just shaking his head, not speaking to him. It's a bit strange. <laughs> Is he not speaking because of his voice? He's thinking they're going to get voice analysis. So straight away we're thinking this is unusual, the way he's not answering, speaking. He's answering by shaking. And, and at times he's scratching his head with questions, but the detective was just taking him step by step along the um, inquiring about the letters that were sent. Where you know, did you send them? Kind of thing. That was it, and it went on for forty minutes or so. End of interview number one. Not getting anywhere with it really. So we had a quick debrief. Said so bring interview number three forward. Drop the DNA on him. Let's see where this goes. And um, so his solicitor um, 
think was advising him again not to speak at that stage. But as soon as um, the detectives started questioning him this time, uh, the minister said, can you just for the tape confirm your name? Humble spoke for the first time. So, okay. And the solicitor was, oh, well, you sure you John Humble. Of course, now we had his voice. And uh, the detective just said, look, we have DNA from the letter. It's your DNA. Do you want to tell us about it? I, I sent him in the Geordie twang, the same as the same toners on the tape. And he then, he then opened up and he confessed everything about it all. And it was one of those, again, moments where it took me straight back to being in that courtroom in 1979, hearing that tape and that voice, that intensity, because I was now listening to this, but the person was sat there who was the person who had done it. But the voice and the way he spoke, it was almost as if I was listening to that tape again, because it, the tone of his voice, this was the person who, for all those years, they terrorising her. The boys are letting you down, George. I am Jack. You know, that's which everybody at the time was familiar with. And he basically said that um, he'd been at home. He thought that cops were useless, that police were useless. I was involving myself, you know, because he was asked, why did you involve yourself? Well, that, that lassie, Jane MacDonald, who was um, killed. After she'd been killed, I thought, you know, the, the, well, how did it help you sending this? You know, he, he couldn't obviously answer, he, he, but he'd involved himself for no good reason, uh, saying that the, the police were basically useless. That's why I did what I did. And um, he said that he'd been down to the library, he'd got a, a book out on the original Whitechapel Ripper murders, and he'd paraphrase some of those kind of expressions in there and use that as his template, which, which was um, known at the time that there were similarities with those. Now contrite, he even agreed to read for detectives the words he wrote years earlier as Wearside Jack. His voice had aged. It was chilling, still the same. I'm Jack. I say you are still having no luck catching me. I have the greatest respect for you, George, but Lord... You are no near catching me now than four years ago when I started. He said that once it started snowballing, he realised um, that I, he said, I, I tried to ring the police. He said, and, and he said, I rang the incident room in Sunderland. And I said, uh, it's, you know, it's not right. It's not right. It's not a Geordie. It's not a Geordie. Now, we know that he did make that call. A PC mount in the incident room in Sunderland took a call from someone anonymously, which turned out clearly to be John Humble, saying just that. This is that call. While Peter Sutcliffe was running free, killing women, while police were floundering around looking in Sunderland, John Humble made this call to the Sunderland incident room, saying the tape was a hoax. Um, it's a camp. What's a fake? The camp is gone. What one is this? The one that he's just received? The river. And if you missed that, and you may have, Humble tells police, tell them it's a fake, the one in June. 
He was now being asked about this in the interview in 2005. Why did you decide it was time to phone in, John? Because I felt guilty. Why? Because that last, one of the lasses was murdered. And I blamed myself for it. That's why I phoned in. They took me notice and another two got killed. They took no notice and another two got killed. He was humble, offering remorse and contrition and realising the full impact of his deception. Women died because Sutcliffe hadn't been caught and the inquiry into Sutcliffe had been derailed because of Humble. And in an incredible revelation from Humble's interview, back in the 1970s, when police were searching for Wearside Jack, he watched from the window as detectives made the way along the street, closing in on him. Whether he rang, whether he rang the incident room because the net was closing around him and he wanted to call the dogs off, which is actually what I believe, I think he realised because he actually said to us that the police came right along his street taking samples from everybody right right to the door next to him door next door to him and stopped you know so they were that close to him but i think he was trying to call the dogs off and um because i'm sure he could have found ways to make it clear that it was a hoax if he'd have chosen to even by writing in again to say it's a hoax yeah but he didn't do that but what he did do was try to take his own life. He um, was on a bridge in Sunderland and he'd put stones in his pockets and he jumped into the, uh, to the river where. But unfortunately for him, he hit the side of a police barge that was just going under. They pulled him out, saved his life not realising whose life he was saving. So yeah, police officers holding one of the most wanted men in the country... They just didn't know who they had on that boat at that time, or who you know tried to uh, to jump in it almost. But that that was the look that he had, or you know, to get away with it for all those years. But you know, it, it came back at the end where he nearly got away with it forever, Rob. You know, he would have got away for it forever um, unless that seal had been found, because Weatherby Lab today no longer exists. That's finished. That's closed down years ago with the closure of the Forensic Science Service and all the items from Weatherby would have, you know, probably, they're all in a central archive now from, uh, from the various forensic labs, but I suspect that would have gone forever. He was charged with perverting the course of justice and he denied that trying to get a lesser charge, didn't he? But, but that wasn't accepted. Yeah, he, he, was, he was charged with um, four counts of perverting the course of justice for the three letters of the tape. He tried to or his legal team tried to um, get a, a lower charge based on some technicality, you know, over the perverting the course of justice. Did he pervert the course of justice? It was all over that. But eventually he pleaded guilty um, and was sentenced to eight years and, you know, had, had some strong words ringing in his ears from the trial judge about his involvement in something that nothing, you know, nothing to do with him. What, what do you think uh, a- about him because he did show some remorse didn't he He showed some contrition but he only went so far with that didn't he he, he did Rob. yeah I, you know in terms of an individual he has not um had i would say a particularly healthy life um he was living alone he, he was not in the best of uh, of you know, 
best of health in any respect, mentally or physically. And um, why he did it, only he knows. I, yes, he did show remorse um, in the interview, and he, I think he genuinely did feel that it was something crazy that he'd done. Um, I, he would probably at the time, of, of like a lot of people, seen the police investigation floundering a little bit, and he was, um, he didn't help by doing what he did. I think that was probably down to his anti-police kind of stance at the time. He was only a young guy at the time. And um, he, he thought it was probably something that amused him in some ways, that he was involving himself until it became too hot for him. And, and he was taken seriously, probably never in a million years expected he would be taken so seriously because he couldn't, he probably couldn't uh, comprehend the amount of potential linkages that would make it be taken seriously. Um, so, yeah, I, I think he was remorseful at the end. I didn't feel anything for him in terms of him as, um, as an individual. I just felt that it was important for a lot of reasons that this person was identified. The, the fact that he had involved himself and this investigation had been so derailed because of it, and that's not, that's not entirely his fault, that's through others, again, who took it seriously and allowed it to be. But he was involved, he did what he did, and I just felt that with modern science now being what it was, if we could nail him for that, we should do. It wasn't a loose end for anybody else, but for me it was. I, I just thought, this is something that is a loose end. And it did feel as though identifying this individual showed that we hadn't forgotten about it. And we did it. We sorted it out, albeit late in the day, but it was sorted out. And he didn't get away with it. And he actually served his time in prison for it. And there was something that justice was done at the end of the day, albeit a small piece of justice, but justice was done. Coming away from Leeds Crown Court the day he was convicted, I was stood outside doing you know, the usual after-court um, media things and press interviews. And um, waiting for me nearby was uh, Richard McCann, who I didn't know Richard, but I'd seen Richard on the news a lot with his mum, you know, Wil Wilma McCann, the first victim. And Richard has made a huge success of his life and is a, a speaker, an inspirational speaker um, on, on all matters related to uh, what we're talking about. And Richard, I spoke to Richard very briefly. And what he said to me was, he said that, he said, when his mum had been killed and this voice became, came on the television. He said, that was the voice of the person who had killed my mum in his mind. He said, and he said, I know it wasn't him after Sutcliffe was caught. He said, but I, I still always felt that that was the killer's voice. He said, seeing him today in court, it's finished that now. Humble was sentenced to eight years in prison. He later appealed the sentence unsuccessfully. He served four years and was given a new identity on release, John Anderson. He died in August 2019 from heart failure brought on by his alcoholism. 
A little over a year later, Peter Sutcliffe, the serial killer, died. He'd been incarcerated at HMP Franklin, a prison only a few miles from Sunderland, from where Wearside Jack had sent those hoax letters. In 2011, a DNA breakthrough found the killer of Joan Harrison, the woman found dead in Preston in 1975. Police identified a man from Leeds, Christopher Smith, as her murderer. He died in 2008. The Crown Prosecution Service said that had he been alive, it had enough evidence to charge him with her murder. George Oldfield retired in 1983 after suffering two heart attacks. He died in 1985. He was, colleagues said, a broken man. He got the call wrong about the hoaxes. He had a spectacular piece of bad luck that not only the serial killer, but also the killer of Joan Harrison in Preston 75 and John Humble, the hoaxer, all had the same rare B blood group. Chris Gregg retired in 2008. He was awarded a Queen's Police Medal in that year's birthday honours. He's since established a company with Dr Angela Gallup, one of Britain's best-known forensic scientists, and Lord Stevens, the former commissioner of the Metropolitan Police. He was one of only two officers and the only detective to work on both the inquiry to find Peter Sutcliffe and the cold case to find Wearside Jack. Justice after nearly three decades. The Ripper investigation was, was a hugely difficult investigation anyway, which was struggling at, at the best of times with the enormity of it. With the involvement of the Ripper letters and tapes, it derailed that investigation um, from almost having any chance of successfully getting to the right individual on its own merits. And three people were killed after the first letters were sent. Three women lost their lives. Could they have been saved? Nobody knows. But it certainly didn't help the investigation because until they were introduced, the case was on the tracks it should have been. It wasn't finding the person, but it was on the tracks. It came off the tracks after they were introduced. If you want to see evidence from this case, see video clips of Chris or learn more, just subscribe to the Behind the Crimes site. The link is in the show notes. Behind the Crimes is written, presented and produced by me, Robert Murphy.